listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. titled the sermon, God is Good and Stuff Happens. We know, yeah, we know, it's okay to laugh. Um, we know that both of those things are true. That God is good and that people suffer. That there's affliction. That sometimes we're the cause of it. And sometimes there doesn't seem to be a cause or maybe there's not a cause or a reason for it. So let's review just a little bit about what we've said so far during our Eastertide series. We know this, that God is love. We just heard it read from 1 John, where it said it again and again. God is love. God is not like love. God is not similar to love. God is not love and something else. God is love. Everything we know about God, who God is, can be understood simply as that, that God is love. We know this too, that God is Christ-like. We long to be Christ-like. We think that's what, it, that's what our calling is, to be more like Christ. But that's because we want to be more like God. God is like Christ. God is not something other than Christ. Christ doesn't represent part of who God is. It's not like Christ is similar to God. In fact, that was an early church uh, doctrine that got rejected, like hardcore rejected. There were some people who wanted to say that Jesus was similar to God. And the church said, eh, wrong answer. In fact, the phrase, only an iota of difference. Have you heard that before? It's just an iota of difference. Iota is like the smallest of the Greek letters. So an iota of difference, you would think, would be almost nothing. Little bitty dot, hardly. An iota of difference. But the iota was the difference between two words, homoousian and homoousian. The homoi had the little iota at the end. And that was the difference between saying that Jesus was, was God, right, was, was exactly like God, as opposed to Jesus was similar to God. And those who wanted to say similar, the church said, no, that's wrong. We might have thought certain things about God. We might have unintentionally adopted views of God from other cultures, from the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans. But who God is, is who God is revealed in Jesus. And then we said this, that love is cross-shaped. That love is not simply just a feeling, it's... it's, it's uh, it's a way of being in the world. It's devotion. It's commitment. It is self-giving. It's radically forgiving. And it's co-suffering. So I have a question for you. Can we believe this stuff? I want to believe it. But then I watch a video like that and you see tsunamis. 
and plagues and buildings that have been destroyed, whether by war or by kind of nuclear accident. I think one of those shots was of Chernobyl. And you, you know that people have starved to death and they've frozen to death. Some of you think we're trying to freeze you to death in here, I'm not sure. <laughs> but we're not. But yeah, when we look around, people suffer. I mean, we don't have to imagine a lot of stuff. I'm standing up here in a mask. We know that people suffer. And so how can we reconcile these two realities that God is love and God is Christ-like and, and stuff happens? So the technical term for this is theodicy. And a lot of people have phrased it. This is David Hume's uh, definition. I think it's perhaps the best. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able well, then God is impotent. Is God able to prevent evil, but unwilling? Well, then God's malevolent. Is God both willing and able? Then whence is evil? So if, if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then why does evil exist? Why does suffering exist? Why are people afflicted? So it's possible that God could be all good, right? But maybe not all powerful, and that might explain the existence of evil. Or maybe God's all powerful, but he's not all good, which would explain the existence of evil. But if we want to say he's all good, and we want to say he's all powerful then this is a big question. The problem of evil, it is sometimes called. And if you ask me, this is the most difficult question I've ever tried to address in my life. Like sometimes, you know that my day job, I teach at a college, and you get students, and they learn new stuff, and they've read a new book, and they think they know something. <laughs> And, and sometimes, you know, they learn something that's different than what they'd learned before. And they start to doubt their belief in God. And they kind of wear their doubt like an intellectual accomplishment. <laughs> As if to say, no one else has ever doubted before. <laughs> like, good job. <laughs> I've, I've said this to you before, but it, it's particularly apropos at this moment. Sophomore which is what we call second-year students, is a combination of two words, Sophia, which means wisdom, and moron, which means fool. So that's an adjective in English. We call it sophomoric. So if, if doubt is a matter of intellect, uh, I'm not all that interested, really. But there's another type of doubt. It's an existential doubt that comes when people face suffering or evil. And it, it doesn't help to try and speculate about things. Martin Luther says this. He says that attempts to explain evil, he calls those theologies of glory. 
as opposed to a theology of the cross, which he sees as, as not an answer to, the, to if God is all good and God is all powerful, then why it's evil, but is rather a revelation. So Luther says this. This is his definition of the theology of glory, or his, if not his definition, it's his summation. Those who try to reason their way out of the problem of evil invariably end up calling evil good. Now, what do we mean by calling evil good? I think you all know what it is. It's like when someone suffers and it, we think it's, on, it's our duty to play the role of one of the friends of Job. Have you ever heard someone say when someone passed away, particularly a young one, well, God needed another angel? No. No, God didn't need another angel. Don't, don't blame that child's death on God. Or they'll say something like this. God's ways are higher than our ways. Thanks. I'm better. Or, or even simply something like, well, God is in control. Well, it looks like he's taken his eye off the, off the road. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. You found that one particularly funny. <laughs> yeah, it's like he took his hand off the wheel. Like, I know what good is. And, and philosophical kind of attempts to explain this stuff does not help. Luther tells us, and not that he knows everything, but he, I think he's really right on this one, that any attempt to try and explain it will inevitably lead us to calling evil good. 9-11... And we'll say, well, what? Those people are evil. God's doing something. Katrina. I, when Hurricane Katrina hit uh, New Orleans, I heard people say, well, maybe God's just judging them for all of the sin that took place there. Or in Haiti, the earthquake a few years ago. Well, it's probably because of all that voodoo they practice. Or the tsunami that hit Japan that ended up uh, causing the meltdown of the, of the nuclear power plant. Well, they did practice ancestral worship for years. Isn't it interesting how when we want to identify evil, it's always out there and it's never in here? Or when we want to identify it, it's always some particular thing and it's never, it's never something big that actually we all deal with. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But we justify things. We justify war. We justify pride. We justify greed. We don't do it in personal ways. We would say, you know, I shouldn't do violence to you or you shouldn't do violence to me. We say that I shouldn't be proud for, proudful or that's vanity. But yet we collectively 
embrace these things. So, God is good. But stuff happens. So here's what I think. If you were hoping that I was going to have an answer for you, I'm sorry. I don't have one. But I think this, every answer I've ever heard, I've been disappointed in. Like, I don't think those are good answers. I think I've looked at the scriptures and there doesn't seem to be an answer for this one. There does seem to be what I might call a response, but it's more of a revelation than it is an answer to the conundrum. And that is this. Jesus died on a cross. Jesus died on a cross and he suffered. He suffered at the hands of evil people. And he took all of that mess, all that stuff that we do, all that stuff that others do, all that stuff that seems to just be out there in the world. You know, we call it acts of God. Those of you who are in the insurance business, right? We, we're not going to cover it because it was an act of God. Why does God have to have the blame for that? Right? It was an act of God, so we're not going to fix your car, even though it's beat to death from the hailstorm. It was an act of God, so we're not going to cover the flood. You shouldn't have built there. Here's a few things that I want to make sure we kind of say and don't say. One, I think evil is real. People really do suffer. They're afflicted. Sometimes we're perpetrators. Sometimes we're victims. But it does not help to pretend that suffering isn't real. That's some kind of fairy tale. Second is this. I think all theodicies fail. Like, this is not something that is simply explained and therefore solved. It is rather something that is endured and we have faith despite it. Like, there was an earthquake and God wasn't in it. There was a fire and God wasn't in it. There was a tornado and God wasn't in it. And then the prophet peered into the darkness of the abyss and there was silence. The NRSV translates it, the sound of sheer silence. And somehow, in the midst of the darkness, there was God. Even, even on, the, on, the, on the flip side of this, when we try to describe God, God is good and God is holy. I mean, all of those descriptions are falling short too. God's not what we say God is. God is more. God is other. We can't ask or even imagine what God is like. So we're not getting it right necessarily on the good side. And we're not really getting it right on this side either. I think 
there are three kind of origins of evil, suffering, and affliction. And the Apostle Paul will talk about these in different places. It's the world, it's flesh, and it's Satan. Mostly, we want to talk about flesh, right? My flesh is weak, so I'm smoking the cigarettes and I'm drinking the alcohol. (laughs) Sorry, that was from the testimonies of my childhood. I remember people praying for that one. Right, so that's what we think. We we don't want people to drink or smoke or listen to rock and roll. Those are the sins. And if we can stop those sins, then somehow the world will be right. Can you appreciate that if we stopped, like if cigarettes didn't exist and alcohol didn't exist and rock and roll didn't exist, the world would still be a mess. That's not going to cure cancer. It's not going to, to liberate the addicted. It's, it's, it's not going to make us treat each other well as opposed to sexist and racist and imperialist ways. That's not going to solve those things. Here's the problem. We've, we've so narrowed down what we think sin is and we're just trying to manage it in our lives that we don't realize it's, it's the world. It's the principalities and the powers. It's the systems in which we live and in which we breathe It's just in us. It's around us. And that's what we're called to resist. I was reading um, the Gospel of Nicodemus this morning, as you typically do on a Sunday morning. It's a fourth century text. It's fictional. Um, It wasn't actually written by Nicodemus. He wasn't around, you know, 300 years after Jesus. But it's, it, the way it ends, it's mostly telling a story. It starts about Pilate and then about Nicodemus, and he's a, kind of a hero. But the, the last bit of it I really loved. It's called The Harrowing of Hell. And it's a story about what happened to Jesus after he died on the cross. And in the story, you have the prince of hell, who later you find out is named Beelzebub. And you have Satan. And they're in an argument. And Beelzebub is like, what did you do? Like, I just ran into John the Baptist. What's he doing here? You have to understand, the idea of hell at this time wasn't like this um, torture chamber where people would burn forever. It was more like the grave. It's like where we all go when we die, right? We go to the grave. Death has overcome us, right? So John's there, except... Beelzebub was smart enough to know that John the Baptist was the heralder of the Christ. So if John's here, who's coming next? Like Simeon spoke up and said, I told you I saw the Messiah when he was a baby. And Satan's like, well, look, man, I tempted him and then I tempted others and they ended up killing him. Like he was trouble. And Beelzebub's like, you dummy, what are you doing? If, if he is coming into the grave, then we're all done for. And then the next thing is this booming voice. It says, the Lord of glory has come. Remove the, the brass gates or I'll tear them down. And Beelzebub's like, hey man, you've got to go out there and fight that guy. Fight the Lord of glory. 
And Satan's like, well, who's the Lord of glory? Sounds like a kid, you know. Who did this? Really? Nobody? Nobody did this? How'd this get here? This jug of milk is sitting out on the counter, and apparently no one put it there. No, some, someone did it. We know who did it, right? Satan's like, well, who's the Lord of glory? And Jesus comes in, and he cleans house. And he descends to the lowest parts of hell. And he takes by the hand Adam and Eve. And he tells them to grab the hands of others. And he raises them up. And you hear David saying, that's my son. And Isaiah is saying, this is the one I prophesied about. You see, there is a revelation here. And that is, in the cross of Christ, we see God's nonviolent, non-coercive, non-manipulative love in action. It is not at all what I would have expected. In fact, C.S. Lewis says, no one really could have believed this, like, except for the fact that no one would have made this up. Like, who can make this up? That a death on a cross ends up being a victory, a glorification, a God who suffers with, a God who radically forgives and forgives us too. We can't forget that. That we, <laughs> like, I might not be the cause of a tsunami or a tornado or a flood. I might not be the cause of a virus or a pandemic. But I cause some pain. I participate in things. I've laughed at jokes I shouldn't have laughed at. I've told some jokes I shouldn't have told. I've discriminated in ways that I shouldn't have. I am a sinner in need of salvation. And I get my salvation through the cross. God worked in Christ and completed a work in Christ in ways that now we hope and wait for God to complete that work in us. What is God doing? Well, apparently God's kind of slow. But we have faith that God is doing. God's not passive. He's not just sitting around. He's actively loving, actively forgiving, actively co-suffering. And he has done a work in Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection that he will complete with us. And we celebrate that when we come to the table. Do you remember those big tables we had when you were kids and it was etched in the front, do this in remembrance of me? That's only half the story. We do this to remember what he has done because that's the most significant act. But Jesus told his disciples to do this until I come. As often as you gather, do this until I come. Because it's the coming of God where God will finally finish what he has started. 
God's not done yet. Those of you who've been around here for a few years might remember a sermon that Phil preached uh, years ago. And he titled it, uh, The King Has One Last Move. We gave out little chess pieces to everyone, little king's piece. The king has another move. He's already harrowed uh, hell. I mean, that, that's a fictional story, but I think Ephesians and 1 Peter talk about this, and we say it in the creed, right? On the, he, he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. That part, which we kind of picked up partially from a verse in Ephesians and partially from a verse in 1 Peter, is then elaborated on centuries later in that book I was reading this morning. We'll call this an anti-theodicy of the cross. Again, it's not an answer to the problem of evil. It's a faithful response to a revelation of who God is in the cross. And that's what I have for you. And, I mean, there's a lot I think I still have to learn from the book of Job. But at the very least, I'm, I'm pretty certain I've learned this. That when I start talking about troubles, you know, somebody's kid died or somebody got sick or somebody lost their job or, you know, somebody's scratching their sores that they sit at the city gate. <laughs> it's one of the things Job did. If there's one thing I have learned from reading Job is when I speak, if I sound like Job's friends, I'm wrong. Well, God's in control. Thank you, Zophar. That's one of his buds. Uh, well, God needed another angel. Shut up, Elihu. <laughs> it's another friend. Well, let me explain to you that we have free will. And therefore, that causes this problem. Really, did free will cause a tsunami? Did it cause an earthquake? Like, whose free will did that one? No, I'm with Luther on this. Any attempts to explain this will inevitably lead us to calling things that are evil good. And we just get confused. God is the one who comes. He doesn't kill. He dies. God is the one who comes and he suffers. God is the one who comes and through his love and through his death and through his suffering and through his forgiveness, he is changing the world. And it will happen. And that is Christian faith and Christian hope. It is faith in a God who is good and long-suffering. It is hope in a God who will do for us what he has done for Jesus, which is the radical reformation or affirmation of life, also known as the resurrection. So we'll end today um, here. We're, we'll come in a minute, I should say, to 
our prayers of the people and your prayers and your thanksgivings, we want to hear. I encourage you to kind of speak them out if you're here with us. And if you're not, if you're, if you're watching on the live stream, to write in the chat. In fact, go ahead and do that. Put your thanksgivings there of the times when you've seen God be faithful or your testimonies of when you feel like God hasn't shown up. Like, that's fair. It's, we call it lament. And it's part of our stories too. But I'll say this. Meister Eckhart prayed a prayer that I've been praying lately and I want you to pray it too. In fact, it could be a, a thematic prayer for this whole series of a more Christ-like God. Eckhart prayed, God, as you really are, rid us of God as we imagine you to be. We are to be cross-bearers. This is a strange and dark theme that is also our birthright as followers of Jesus. Shaping our world is never arrogantly thinking we can just get on with the job, reorganizing the world according to some model that we have in mind. It is a matter of sharing and bearing the pain and puzzlement of the world so that the crucified love of God in Christ may be brought to bear healingly upon the world at exactly that point. Because Jesus bore the cross uniquely for us, we do not have to purchase forgiveness again. It's been done. But because, as he himself said, following him involves taking up the cross, we should expect, as the New Testament tells us repeatedly, that to build on his foundation will be to find the cross etched into the pattern of our life and work over and over again. We would rather this were not so, and we twist and turn to avoid it. We find ourselves in Gethsemane saying, Lord, can this really be the way? If I have been obedient so far, why is all this happening to me? Surely, you don't want me feeling like this. Sometimes, indeed, the answer may be no. no. It is possible that we have indeed taken a wrong road and must now turn and go by a different way. But often the answer is simply that we must stay in Gethsemane. The way of Christian witness is neither the way of quietest withdrawal, nor the way of Herodian compromise, nor the way of angry militant zeal. It is the way of being in Christ. In the spirit. At the place where the world is in pain. So that the healing love of God may be brought to bear at that point. Paul speaks of the whole creation groaning together in travail. Where should the church be at such a time? Sitting smugly on the sidelines knowing that we have all the answers? No. We ourselves groan too because we too long for renewal, for final liberation. And where is God in all this? Sitting up in heaven, wishing we could get our act together? No. no. God is groaning too, present within the church at the place where the world is in pain. God the Spirit groans within us. Calling in prayer to God the Father. The Christian vocation is to be in prayer in the spirit at the place where the world is in pain and as we embrace that vocation 
we discover it to be the way of following Christ, shaped according to his messianic vocation to the cross, with arms outstretched, holding on simultaneously to the pain of the world and to the love of God. And as we embrace this vocation, it is important to remember that the prayer is likely to be inarticulate. It does not have to be a thought-out analysis of the problem and the solution. It is likely to simply be a groan in which the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the crucified and risen Christ, groans within us. So that the achievement of the cross might be implemented afresh at that place of pain. So that the music of the cross might be softly sung at that place of pain. So that the foundation of the cross might support at that place of exile. A A new home. home. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.